Harold, you are the 13th Arthur Goodhart Visiting Professor of Legal Science to be interviewed for the Eminent Scholars Archive. You're currently the Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale Law School, a position that you've held since 2013. You've been the Goodhart Professor for the academic year 2018-19, to and we are very grateful for your agreeing to share some reminiscences of your life and career and your experiences here in Cambridge over this period. I hope you can also give us some thoughts on legal topics in international law. So could we start with your early life? You were born in Boston on December the 8th, 1954, and this was 16 months after the end of the Korean War. Your father was originally from what is North Korea, but he escaped to the United States. Can you tell us a little about your parents, how they came to the States, and re-established themselves there. Uh, yeah, so um, actually it was my mother who's from North Korea. Um, uh, my parents are the inspiration of my life. Uh, my father's an international law professor, which explains why I'm an international law professor. His name was Kwang Lim Ko, um, and he was from a very small island uh, off the south coast of South Korea. So he was as south as you could get. It's called Cheju Island. It's a fishing, <laughs> it's a fishing village, and uh, he was a, an incredibly hardworking student, uh, and was the first student from the island ever to go to Seoul, which was uh, an astonishing. It'd be like someone from the the uh, Isle of Wight coming to London. Um, at the time, the the uh, uh, Seoul National University was controlled by the Japanese colonial forces. And so what he attended was called Keijo Imperial University, where he was the only Korean with one other fellow. And they were very heavily discriminated against. But my father took this as a challenge and was uh, number one in the class, even though he was the only one of the only two Koreans. Um, and uh, this created this incredible drive for achievement, really, to, to prove that uh, Koreans could not be looked down upon. Uh, my mother, who my dad passed away in 1989, um, he did not escape to America. He came as a student. Uh, in fact, we just found <laughs> the materials. He got a scholarship from an educational institution in Princeton, New Jersey, which he misunderstood. This was in, in 1949. He misunderstood to mean he was being admitted to Princeton University to study law. Uh, Princeton doesn't have a law school. So he came all the way to America, went to Princeton, and they said, we don't have a law school. So he enrolled in a PhD program at nearby Rutgers University in New Jersey, got a PhD. He then went to Harvard Law School, got a master's LLM, and then got an SJD. Uh, and then finally, just to establish that he could practice law in America, he got a JD degree from Boston College Law School. Um, and I'll say more about this in a moment, but his specialty was law of the sea, and uh, particularly the, the study of fisheries. Um, next week, I'm arguing at the International Court of Justice about, among other things, Russia's theft of fisheries from Ukraine. So it, it's coming uh, full circle in some way. I'm finally, I realized my father had a vision that uh, was uh, just very far reaching. Uh, now, my mother, Hae Sung Chun Ko, 
is from a very different walk of life. She's from a very well-to-do family in Seoul. Um, she is still alive. Uh, when I get back from Cambridge, we'll have her 90th birthday. Uh, she gave birth to six children. She has her own PhD. Um, she is the head of a research institute on uh, Koreans and Korean Americans. And she's a sociologist. Um, and my parents were the first uh, Asians ever to teach law at Yale Law School, uh, where they did in 1961. And um, my sister and I are now chaired professors at Yale Law School many years later. So, uh, but what happened was that my mother's family um, had a summer home in North Korea, uh, which is a very cool mountainous part of the country. And when the country was divided by uh, after after the end of World War II, they were happened to be up there her herself and her two siblings, and was actually trapped inside North Korea for uh, three or four months. Um, and the Russians were in control. And um, she was recounting to me just very recently that when the Russians came marching down. Uh, they didn't know what to do, so they held up a sign, you're supposed to welcome them. She didn't like the Russians, so she put up a sign that said, Welcome Allied Forces. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, she was advised that, uh, uh, you know, she was 17 years old, that um, the Russian forces were raping and molesting young Korean women. So after several months, she dressed up as a boy, and she and her two brothers hiked to the border. And my father, my grandfather, who I never met, her father, sent a car to meet them. When they got to the border, there was no car. And uh, uh, then they just waited there for uh, 10, 10 hours or something, and suddenly a car appeared and took her south. Um, amazingly, a few months later, she uh, went to America on a scholarship. Uh, to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, as a freshman, um, the war started, Korean War started, and Dickinson College is very close to the Army War College. And they sent a kind of distress signal saying, does anyone speak Korean? Because our generals need to know how to speak Korean. So my mother went over there as a freshman, she's 18 years old, and started teaching them Korean language. And then a few weeks later, she said to them, you know, you can't learn Korean language without learning Korean history, and you can't learn Korean history without learning Korean culture. And so I want to teach these courses, and you can't do any of it without knowing Korean geography. So she taught all of these courses as a fresher. Um, so she is an, a remarkable person, as you can tell. Um, and so my parents were among the only two Koreans uh, in the East Coast under the Japanese, I'm sorry, under the, the Korean Normalization Act. I think there were less than a thousand in the mainland of America as opposed to Hawaii. Uh, and then by incredible coincidence, um, the my father's dissertation advisor at Rutgers went to Dickinson where my mother was a student to give a speech and my mother was his tour guide. And so uh, he went back and told my father, there's this remarkable 
Korean woman at not so far from here. Um, so my father began writing her letters and proposing marriage and things like this, <laughs> sight unseen. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, uh, eventually she agreed to a meeting and then they got married. And the, I'm the fourth uh, child of six. And <laughs> what, what an incredible trajectory. Well, I think there are a couple things you can get from that. One is... Uh, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, I think, uh, by, by my history, you know, I, um, it's, it's a miraculous story, uh, really. Uh, in fact, I'll tell a little bit more if it's not too much. Uh, the pivotal moment of my father's career came in, uh, he was at Harvard Law School, and um, Syngman Rhee's government, uh, which was uh, sort of an American uh, being propped up by the Americans collapsed. And my father's friend, uh, John Chung, was the ambassador from Korea to Washington, wanted to run for prime minister. And my father was so popular in the south of Korea that Chung asked my father to go back and campaign for him. But um, uh, my father didn't have any money. And, uh, but he had just joined the church at Harvard Law School, right? It's right next to Harvard Law School. And so the minister of the church said to my parents, um, okay, uh, on Sunday, we'll tell you to leave the church and just take your family and walk out. So he did. And uh, a few minutes later, he came out and gave us several thousand dollars. He had, he had just called for the congregation to donate money so that this young patriot could go back to Korea. So my father goes back, uh, they win the election, and he suddenly was offered every position. He was sort of the young star of the government. He then agreed to be the first ambassador to the UN, but um, and he was only 40 years old. Um, uh, the Korea was an observer nation. So then they said, we would like you to be the number two guy in Washington, the uh, charge d'affaires. And this was the ideal position for my father. The year was uh, 1960. Uh, John Kennedy had just been elected. And my father was uh, constantly over at the White House. And everybody at the White House was somebody he knew from Harvard. And he was having the time of his life. And then uh, and we were living in Washington, D.C., the whole, whole family. One day, he, uh, my mother gets a call, and my father's at Dulles Airport. And he says to her, what I was worried about is happening. I'm going back to Korea. And it turned out he had been warned that the Korean government would be overthrown by a military dictatorship. And so he flew back and warned Chang, his, his, uh, his mentor and boss, and Chang said, no, no, General Park, uh, Park Chung-hee will prevent this from happening. A few days later, G General Park himself committed the coup, and they were all thrown out. By this point, my father was back in America, and he convened the meeting of um, everybody at the embassy. And he said, uh, everyone must take a pledge. We will never serve. A dictatorship. We will only serve a democracy that's governed by the rule of law. And everybody signed the pledge. 
And within a year, everybody broke the pledge except for my father. And he was exiled, and he never served in the government again. But he told me the story countless times. And his main point was that many people profess to care about the rule of law, but it's, it's really kind of a... Um, uh, but they're weak-willed, and um, uh, when push comes to shove, they don't live their commitments. Then the other amazing thing that happens, and then I'll end this little account, is that um, my father heard that Chang, his boss, would be executed uh, and was under house arrest. So he went to the White House to see the deputy national security advisor, who is a man named uh, Walt W. Rosdell, famous uh, economist. And uh, Rosdell said to him, we know where Mr. Chang is. He will not be harmed. And my father was just staggered by the reach of American power that this guy sitting in Washington could say this with certainty about something happening on the other side of the world. Uh, and then when it was over, um, and also I think he, he was stunned by what he thought was the goodness of American power. You know, obviously America's power has had many faces, but this gave my father a deep love of America, which I think everybody in my family shares, that um, there's a, a good America and then there's a not so good America, but we have to keep calling America to its uh, better angels. At the very end of the conversation, almost proving this, um, what Rostow says to my father, uh, what are you doing now? And my father says, I'm, I'm exiled and I'm unemployed and uh, I, I have six children. And uh, Rostow says, don't, don't you teach law? And my father says, uh, yes. And he says, well, you know, my brother is dean of Yale Law School, uh, Eugene Rostow. Let me call him. <laughs> so he picks up the phone and they have a very short conversation. According to my father, the conversation lasted maybe 10 seconds. And he, he couldn't hear what he said. <clears throat> and my father just assumed that um, nothing had happened. So he was getting ready to leave. And then Rostov said, where are you going? And my father said, um, I guess it, it didn't work out. And he said, no, no, no. He said, uh, my brother said, can you get here in a week? And a week later, we moved to New Haven. Forty years later, I was dean of Yale Law School. So, <laughs> so from the, these strands come a couple of things. You know, first, I think uh, this belief in human rights that we have to fight for human rights. Second, um, that we have to be committed to the rule of law. Third, that we have to call America. American citizens have to call America to its better angels. Um, and um, finally, that, uh, you know, there's a generous approach to life and a less generous approach to life. And, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to be the beneficiary, uh, then you have to take that generous approach to others. And, um, so I've tried to live by those ideas, not, you know, imperfectly, but, uh, the <laughs> but, um, that, that's been the case. Now there's a very interesting connection to good heart, which is, when I was growing up in New Haven, Connecticut, my 
uh, dad wanted my brother to get into a local boys' school, and it turned out the only way you could get in was to be recommended by someone who had gone to that school. And there was a guy, a uh, young professor, Guido Calabresi, and my father went to him and asked him, uh, would you recommend my sons, my brother, to the school, which he did. And then he recommended each of us, and that's how we went. Years later, I was Guido's colleague and then succeeded him as the dean of the law school. But um, it was uh, Guido who said to me, the best year I ever had was my year at Cambridge as the Goodhart professor at Trinity Hall. And that's when it sort of came into my mind, gee, I'd like to be the Goodhart professor someday. <laughs> and my other colleague, John Langbein, also had a similar experience at uh, Trinity Hall. So um, anyway, that's how, I, that's how I got here. Thank you very much. You mentioned that in the 60s, you, your family was in Washington, and I'd somehow assumed that you grew up in New Haven, so you would have undertaken your schooling, your early schooling, presumably in Washington? No, it was only a year. Um, so we were in Boston. Um, so two interesting things about my childhood, well, three interesting things. One, I had all of these brothers and sisters. Uh, who were tremendously capable at um, both protected me and pushed me along. Uh, my older sister was Carolyn is dean of was dean of the uh, Chungang University. She's a PhD in chemistry. My brother Howard uh, became assistant secretary of health and human services and under Obama and uh, commissioner of public health of Massachusetts. And he. Um, is a professor at Harvard School of Public Health. And then my brother Edward uh, is an MD, PhD in neuroscience and became a um, anesthesiologist. And then my younger sister, Jean Coe Peters, became um, uh, the Goldman professor of uh, law at Yale Law School. So we were, in the history of Yale University, which is more than 300 years, we were the first brother and sister to have chairs, which was very touching because our parents had taught there. So we have a picture of ourselves, uh, my parents in 1965, standing in the faculty picture, and then us in, 19, in 2005 in the faculty picture. So, um, uh, my father was very determined that we sort of forge ahead, so we all skipped many grades. And so I, uh, I went to school when I was um, uh, four years old, um, and I learned to read very early. I also had polio. Um, my brothers and I all got a polio fever uh, the last year before the vaccine was uh, developed and so they were older and had more immunities, but I had a series of painful operations. Um, so I was both younger and you know sort of physically uh, had more difficulty getting around. Uh, as a result, though, I've you know it, it hasn't been a an inhibition in my life really. Um, but it ended up that I went to school very early and I, um, I graduated from college very early, age 20. 
Uh, and that's part of what led me to want to come to England for a couple of years. I thought, you know, I spent my whole life being two years younger than everyone around me. And um, maybe I should, um, you know, get a little bit of um, maturing. Um, and at that time, when I was uh, graduating from college, I had gone to Korea many times, but I'd never been to Europe. And I understood that I had a kind of Anglo-Saxon way of thinking, but I didn't actually understand what the origins of this were, or the philosophical assumptions. And so I applied for a scholarship and I won this scholarship from the British government. And I came to Oxford and read philosophy, politics, and economics at Maudlin College, Oxford. And that's become the second home uh, to me now. So um, you graduated BA from Harvard in 1975 at the Correct. age of 20. And you chose Harvard presumably because of your father's association. Yeah, my father loved Harvard mainly because he had heard of Harvard in Korea. It's so big and famous that um, it was the only place he'd really heard of. But it was very interesting. <laughs> At one point, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say this uh, on tape, he said, there are four great universities in the world, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge. And, um, you know, I, I was educated at Harvard. I taught at Yale. I went to Oxford. And I'd never been to Cambridge. So that was another reason I came to the good heart. And now I feel that this uh, kind of um, uh, dark spot is, is, has been illuminated. <laughs> Uh, you acted as a law clerk for Justice Harry A. a. Blackman of the yes. US Supreme Court and Judge Malcolm Richard Wilkie. And this was about 1976. What were the circumstances of your obtaining these positions? Um, no, I graduated from uh, Harvard College in government in 1975. I was originally a physics major. But I wasn't very good at physics, so I switched to uh, government, political science. But I had a sort of incomplete liberal arts education in my own view. So then I, from 75 to 77, that's when I read PPE at Maudlin. So I went back to Harvard at law school in 1977 to 1980. Um, and originally I wanted to do international law, but they didn't have much in the way of international law at Harvard at the time. The one person whose work I focused on a little bit there was Abram Chase, who um, was writing about international legal process, and that became a little bit of the focal point of my work on transnational legal process. Um, Judge Wilkie uh, just interviewed me. He was the general counsel of Kennecott Copper Corporation, and he had had a very, very career in international law, international business, and in the government. Uh, there was a moment in college that really hit home, which is about U.S. foreign policy. They had a class, and they suddenly started talking about um, Henry Kissinger as a scholar diplomat. And I remember raising my hand and saying, what does that mean? And they said, well, there are some people who are professors and they have tenure, but they're also diplomats. And so they go back and forth 
and they get benefits from both in that uh, when they're in the, the real world, they gain practical experience. And when they're in the academy, they can think bigger thoughts. And I said, who are such people? And they said, um, you know, Henry Kissinger, John Kenneth Galbraith, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, Lincoln Gordon, uh, Robert Strauss, Hupe. So I decided to write a paper about this and I interviewed a bunch of these people I mean, and um, it wasn't a very good paper, but uh, it, it actually made me think, gee, this is a great idea, if I could. <laughs> and uh, that, that idea uh, stuck with me. And, and Judge Wilkie had had a similar kind of career. He had been a practicing lawyer at the Justice Department, but then he had become an international lawyer for a major global corporation. Um, so he assigned me to every international law matter that came before him, and he had cases on extraterritoriality and immunities. So that was my first real exposure to international law, but it was international law in domestic courts. And that's what made me think that, well, gee, that there's um, uh, the divide between domestic and international is very artificial. It's actually a transnational process. Um, Justice Blackman, uh, was a very internationally minded person also, uh, and also thought very deeply about the law. And he also said, um, and if you want to work on the international cases, we don't have that many of them. So those two years, which are almost like a postgraduate study, was my understanding how international law was actually penetrating domestic law through the courts. And um, that just permanently affected the way I thought about um, law and practice. Uh, my, my father had a saying, um, theory without practice is as lifeless as practice without theory is thoughtless. And his view was you should do both theory and practice, both as kind of a check on each other. Um, so almost from the very beginning, I did that. And I started at a law firm called Covington and Burling, which is a very well-known Washington firm that has a big international practice. Um, it was coming off of the um, Iran hostages crisis, which I think now is kind of a pivotal moment in international law uh, and triggered a whole series of matters, including the Iran-US claims tribunal, et cetera. So I ended up working on all these things. I represented the Iranian hostages on a pro bono matter. In the middle of it all, someone comes to me and says, how would you like to teach a course at night uh, at George Washington Law School? And um, it turned out that another lawyer at the firm had been teaching this course with his uh, uh, friend, and then the friend had gone on maternity leave. And I was sort of petrified, and they said, um, you know, you can use her lecture notes. They're all written out. <laughs> they were stunningly complete. Um, so the, the time I was at the law firm, I taught the course with him. He then went on leave, and she came back, and I then taught the course with her. And then the third year, I taught it by myself. And the book we used was called... Uh, Steiner and Vatt's Transnational Legal Problems. And then someone asked me, do you want to write a book review of transnational legal problems? And I did. 
Uh, and then Vats, Detlev Vats, who I had not known at Harvard Law School, contacts me and said, you know, how would you like to update the book? So I became the co-author of the book, and you know, transnational legal problems became the way that I looked at the world. Um, so your academic career has been primarily at Yale, interspersed with periods of government service for democratic administrations, and this is an arrangement which would be unusual in the UK. Oh, um, my, my first job was with Reagan. Right. From 19... Uh, so I, I worked for the Reagan Administration Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department from 1983 to 85. Right. And, and I worked on such matters as, you know, ratification of the Genocide Convention, um, the suit by Nicaragua against the United States at the International Court of Justice, uh, the follow-on to the resolution of the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, but, you know, I didn't vote for Reagan. And um, uh, by the end of that period, I said to myself, I'm, I'm not going to work anymore for someone I didn't vote for. Right. It's far more helpful if you are actually attached to the political cause yes. in terms of focusing your legal notions. Oh, very much so. Yes, it's quite, it's quite helpful, I would think. Well, in fact, it was very ironic. What happened was um, in 1990, or 1989 fall, I got tenure and my father passed away. This, this all happened uh, very suddenly and uh, in the space of a few weeks. And uh, then in the spring, my son was born. And uh, I was teaching international business transactions at the time, which I, I liked, but I didn't care much. I didn't, you know, it, it wasn't something that um, touched my heart. And um, then we decided, uh, students asked me, would you form a human rights clinic? Because we should be able to sue human rights violators. And I decided to do it with another guy called Michael Ratner, who I didn't know, but we started in the fall of 1990. Um, and then um, we got involved with a suit on behalf of Haitian refugees in Florida, which was uh, uh, lost to the government very quickly. Um, and then the students said to me, and I, I've been saying to them, the case should have been brought somewhere else. We, we'd have a better chance if it was brought in New York. And then they said to me, would, would you bring the case to New York? And I said, well, you know, suing the US government is a serious business. Uh, but then, you know, I went, I went to my father's grave and I'm standing there and I thought, you know, uh, I have all of the security that he never had. Um, he told me to stand for principles. Um, you know, if, if I'm an immigrant with tenure at an Ivy League university, if I'm not going to do this, who else is going to do this? So I said, go ahead. <clears throat> and uh, we just worked on this like crazy for two years and sued the Bush administration. I had never been in a court. Uh, I, I, I'd been in a court, but I never argued a motion even. And I argued 26 times in the next few uh, year and a half, including, you know, I argued one motion standing at a speakerphone at a maitre d' station in a, ho in a hotel lobby at the... Uh, Grand Central Station, 
And the case went to the Supreme Court, and I argued at the Supreme Court. It was the first case about Guantanamo. I went to Guantanamo. I went to Haiti. Um, and I was, at the time, supporting Bill Clinton, who was running for president. But uh, when he got elected, he reversed his own position, and he uh, sustained Bush's policy, which was a bitter disappointment to me. Um, I was told at the time, uh, you have a good chance to be the legal advisor of the State Department. And a couple of people said to me, my, my colleagues, why, why don't you not argue the case and go into the government? You can do more good in the government. And I said, invoking my dad, you know, I'm not going to serve a government that can't take the position consistent with the rule of law. I mean, these guys changed their view. And I said, if I never serve in the government, that's okay. Um, uh, anyway, we lost on the law, but we sort of won in the court of public opinion eventually. Uh, uh, and that showed me that the relationship between law and politics, you know, that you can lose in court and the transnational legal process can play on. I then brought a suit on behalf of Cubans, uh, Cuban Americans on Guantanamo in Florida. And people said to me, gee, you know, nobody who represents the Haitians represents Cubans because one is sort of left people and the other is sort of right. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't represent ethnic groups. I recommend, I, I represent people who take particular legal positions. It's the same legal position. So I spent really four years suing the U.S. government and suing my own, the party I had voted for, Clinton. In the middle of it all, I meet Hillary Clinton, who was at the time the first lady. And this is before Clinton adopted his view, and I was very impressed by her. I, I thought she was very sympathetic to our view. Uh, it turned out she was, and that she was pushing Bill Clinton to change the policy in the direction that we favored, and eventually he did. Um, and then 1990, uh, when all this litigation ended, uh, I was exhausted, and so we decided that we would come to England for a year. And I went to All Souls as a visiting professor. And my family came over, and my children, and they made friends here in the UK. In, in fact, such good friends that we're still friends with these people now. We just attended the wedding of a a young guy who was three years old when we first met him, and he, he's now a graduate student at Cambridge. <laughs> uh, and um, I'm going to give him my printer. <laughs> um, and then I went back, and it was uh, 1997, and suddenly I got a call from uh, Madeleine Albright's uh, sort of right-hand man, uh, and he had been my student a fellow named uh, Jim O'Brien. And he said, you know, uh, we'd like you to be Assistant Secretary for Human Rights. And I was kind of dumbfounded. And I said, you know, I spent the whole last four years suing Clinton. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's why Madeline wants you. He said, because everybody knows that um, if, if you defend us, you're not just doing it because it's in your political interest, it's because you believe it, you know, that you're not a yes man. Um, so anyway, I, I went in and I did that job. And then through that, I met a lot of people around 
Bill and Hillary Clinton, but particularly Hillary Clinton, I worked with on a number of issues. Uh, it turned out later Hillary Clinton was the person who sort of cast the vote for me to get the job as Assistant Secretary for Human Rights. Um, and I stayed in touch with her. And then I came back to law school and became the dean. I did that from 2004 to 2009. Um, and then, um, you know, Obama got elected. And I actually supported Hillary. Um, and I thought, well, that's too bad. And then suddenly Hillary became Secretary of State. Um, and so they asked me to be the legal advisor of the State Department. So that's, that's what happened. Um, in 2013, after I had served for four years, I thought, um, well, Hillary will be president. So I think I, I'll leave now and come back in later. And so in 2016, I worked for her campaign and I, I thought I would go. In the middle of it all, James Crawford and Ellie Lauderpack said, how would you like to be the Goodhart professor? And I thought, I'd love to be the Goodhart professor, but um, I'll probably be in the government or I hope to be in the government, uh, which is one reason why I didn't end up coming here for a while, you know. Um, and. Um, and then suddenly she lost and uh, Trump became president. And, uh, um, and then I thought, well, it's a good time to go back over to England. Um, <laughs> and uh, what happened was um, I had started talking about the relationship between Trump and international law. And then I thought, you know, I should really write this as a book. And um, so last spring when I was at Trinity College, um, I finished my classes at Yale. I flew over here. I landed and it was raining. Nobody knew who I was. And for six weeks, I just worked from morning till night. And um, it was great. I mean, this is what uh, the college is equipped to do. You know, like I went over for lunch, <laughs> went over for dinner. And, and uh, I had no interruptions. And, um, and the book got finished. And then... And, um, September got published. And then um, in the middle of it all, I had said, people were emailing me, can you come and speak? And I, I said, I'm writing this book, can I come in a year? Because I knew I would be back. So this spring I've been to Sheffield, Nottingham, Leicester, Swansea, um, Dublin yesterday, Trinity College, Oxford, Cambridge, London. Uh, and it's kind of talking about the book. So I couldn't, uh, I didn't set it up that way, but I'm glad that it worked out that way. It's been very rewarding. And uh, you mentioned on the Lauterbach Center profile page that you would be working on this forthcoming book. Yes. Which is now being published, and it seems to me that you are very happy with it. And oh, yeah. reception. You also said that you, in the second part of your fellowship, would focus on issues surrounding law and globalization for another book. Um, have you been able to make some progress on that? Yes. Um, so in 2014, I gave the Clarendon Law Lectures, uh, on, which are called Law and Globalization. It was a very simple idea that um, the three faces of law and globalization is, is, is law is the globalization of law is a feature of globalization, law as globalization, that law promotes globalization by uh, connecting 
parts of the world. So the law in globalization. And then third, that uh, the law of globalization is emerging as its own distinctive subject. So we have global criminal law, global property law, intellectual property. It, so it's really more of a way of understanding uh, how globalization and law intersect. I've written most of it, but um, some of it I took out of that book and put it into the Trump book. Um, I've just been having a conversation with OUP, um, Oxford Press, and also Yale Press. Um, I'm interested now to update the National Security Constitution book um, in light of 9-11 and the Mueller report. And I think I'm going to do that first. I, I'm, I would, the book is called the, the National Security Constitution. So I'm going to do a version called the 21st Century National Security Constitution, because I think that this is the logical follow on. I, I think I'll do the Law and Globalization book as a much shorter book. The original three lectures. Um, I all, am also supposed to write a book of uh, on human rights. I gave lectures at uh, uh, European University Institute a few years ago, which is kind of my lecture on human rights, and it's supposed to be published as part of a series. Uh, you know, those tapes are all there and transcribed, and um, I would like to have my take on this done before I'm before I'm done. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I'm. I'm sort of more interested right now in writing about uh, the issues that are the most current Be because, you know, this, the attack by Trump on international law is so savage uh, to write an optimistic book about law and globalization. Um, it, it's really about law and defense of globalization, laws of defense to uh, um, humane globalization. Yeah, gl globalization can occur in two ways. Um, simplistically put, uh, it can impoverish uh, uh, the middle class and enhance inequality. That's Trump's position, that um, globalization has hurt the common man and that therefore the answer is to end globalization and to um, become more nationalist. This, this is also the spirit of Brexit. Um, blame immigrants, um, fortress America. You know, the way to make America great again is to stop being global. And my view is that this is profoundly ignorant and wrongheaded, um, partly because there are so many global problems that have to be addressed collectively. You know, you're not going to solve climate change by yourself. And partly because it's just a misunderstanding of. Uh, you know, globalization can be managed in a humane way, so it has a human face, or it can just evolve in such a way that the rich get richer. And a kind of laissez-faire approach tends to lead to um, increasing inequality, which is what we've seen. So all of these topics are connected one to the other. I, I will get to them all in time, but I, I work on the thing that I think is um, the most timely. What I'm working on at the moment most directly, and I wrote an article about this, is uh, Trump's belief is that he can uh, withdraw from treaties at will. 
by himself. Um, now, Trump, Trump, because he's so weak politically, uh, he likes to do things that he thinks he can do on his own. And that includes pardon people, take away security clearances, deny people press passes. Um, this, these are bad, but they're not destructive of the system. But the most destructive has been his claim that he can, by himself, withdraw from any treaty he wants. And so he's, in, he's withdrawn from the Paris Agreement or trying to, the Iran nuclear deal, the um, uh, two treaties with Iran, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia. And an obvious question is, could Trump tomorrow tweet, I withdraw from every treaty of which the United States is a party. That, that would bring down the structure of international law. Now, when you had the exact same issue over here in the UK, can the UK withdraw from the EU without parliamentary participation? The answer was no. So I think that same issue is coming to a head in the US. So I wrote a long article about that last summer after, as a follow-on to the book. Where was that published? Uh, the Yale Journal, Yale Law Journal, actually the Yale Law Journal Forum. It's called "Presidential Power to Terminate International Agreements," and it's challenging this this claim that the president has this cross-cutting unilateral power. I mean, I think Brexit is a good example. Um, it, it's funny because the way that this notion got currency in academia was the thought that the United States or, or the president might have to suddenly get out of some entangling alliance and that the danger would be that we would be stuck in some agreement that would be threatening to our national interests. What I think we've seen from Brexit is the greater danger is you try to get out without thinking through the consequences. You know, um, these um, our connections, international and domestic, are so deeply intertwined. To cut the fabric of our legal connections is like trying to pull all the red threads out of a tapestry and thinking you're not going to destroy the tapestry. Um, and, you know, what, what are we seeing? You know, yesterday I was in Ireland and I was talking in Dublin, I was talking to someone and we were eating sandwiches and he goes, my friend said, it's, it's a little hard to just get out of the EU if everything in your sandwich has been back and forth across the border 15 times. And I think that's what you're experiencing, is that um, international and domestic are so deeply intertwined. The idea that you can just Nigel Farage style say, we want to be independent, is naive and a myth. So we're actually now moving on to your published work and um, in this regard you are a very obviously prolific writer and thinker on issues in international law and your faculty website lists 11 books and monographs and I've seen that you've done more or less 150 journal articles. So obviously I've been unable to read these in depth. <laughs> I've just skimmed them but I've benefited greatly from reviews, and I've selected four of your books, which you could just briefly touch on. Sure. Your National Security Constitution, 
your Trump, your recent book, the Trump Administration, International Law, and then I selected two in between, the 2005 Foundations of International Law and Politics and your 2008 Transnational Litigation in the United States Courts. And it seems to me that issues of transnationalism and international law are a dominant theme during yeah. your research career. And in the acknowledgement of your first book, your National Security Constitution, you said that your interest in constitutional law and foreign affairs started in the 1980s when you were a clerk to Justice Harry Blackman. So he, it seems to me he was your initial inspiration and you actually wrote a tribute to him in 1994. So is, is it possible to summarise perhaps the legacy of your association with Justice Blackman, which has possibly influenced the original developments of your notions of transnationalism? Yeah, Justice Blackman um, is the most, apart from my father, the uh, the person with whom I have the strongest emotional connection. He was a very modest man, but uh, incredibly hardworking. Um, he traveled a lot, and uh, he uh, was very modest about America versus other countries. And... Um, one point he made to me quite a bit was that, you know, when, you, when the United States was a young nation uh, at the beginning, it was very respectful of international law. This is what young nations do, that um, they, they declare fidelity to international law as a way of being accepted on the world stage. So, you know, some people talk about originalism. Uh, originalism means we're globalist. You know, we're inherently global. So someone like, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, the new justice, who is my student, uh, claims to be an originalist, and he's an anti-globalist. Uh, that's, that's not possible. You know, if you're an originalist, you're a globalist. And early on, the Supreme Court said unanimously, international law is part of our law and shall be uh, applied uh, as often as courts of appropriate jurisdiction shall apply it. And um, that means that we have a permeable system that international norms enter our system and become domestic law. And these norms come both from uh, international affairs, you know, the 12 mile limit in the law of the sea, and they come from human rights law. Uh, I'll never forget Justice Blackman said to me, we were discussing whether you could execute a child. And uh, I pointed out to him that, that this was uh, barred by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which the United States was not a party to, but barred everywhere in the world. And he pointed out to me that the U.S. has an Eighth Amendment clause that prevents cruel and unusual punishments. And if nobody else does it, it's unusual. <laughs> um, the other was when we were talking about equality, he said to me, uh, equality is not American property. You know, the French had egalité, fraternité, uh, uh, liberté. It, 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 it was a, the United States... Um, Bill of Rights and came at the same time as French Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man. So universal human rights 
um, is not something that the United States somehow owns and can therefore just ignore at its will. So um, what Justice Blackman, I think, taught me was that um, this intertwining of international and domestic law is both natural and original. And there are a bunch of people who swim against this tide and want to rewrite history. Um, I don't think they're particularly persuasive. But it's, it's very interesting because I think that um, um, the way that they do it is they try to denude international law of influence by saying, I, I focused in on this little rule. Can you track influence from this rule? Well, the way that rules affect things is that they're deeply interconnected. You, you sent me, for example, this, this um, book review by Goldsmith, who is another one of my students. And <laughs> the two things that struck me about it, you know, he's a very pessimistic guy. It's kind of sad and dark view of the world. You know, from his perspective, Trump has already won. He's given up. And, um, but more fundamentally, he wants to uh, divide, uh, sort of isolate the impact of an international rule and then say, see, it doesn't have any power. Well, that's exactly what you don't do. It's, it's, it's interconnectedness with all the other rules and political incentives, et cetera, that it, it, what gives it its force. Sometimes the international norm can be the glue that makes the difference. So we're speaking today, the day after Memorial Day, Trump proposed to pardon soldiers who had committed war crimes. Uh, anyway, he didn't do it. And there was a massive protest. And it's a combination of things. You know, it obviously violates the Geneva Conventions. The International Committee of the Red Cross spoke against it. Those uh, generals in the US Army and also uh, military people in other countries all protested. They made clear that Trump would lose the support of his generals, which is kind of a political thing. But it scared him off doing something that he was, he was just focused on the short-term impact on one tiny constituency, and now he's backed off. Now, you know, Trump is a willful and difficult enough person that it's, it's not over. But that's the mistake of trying to isolate um, these things. This also goes, by the way, to the relationship between law and politics and law and political science. Um, I, don't, I don't think that what I'm studying is a science. I think it's a craft. And um, a, a good example is that political scientists have become very quantitative. And they do the same thing. How do we measure? And what I like to say is, you know, if you can't measure what's important, you make important what you can measure. So I, I remember being at a conference where someone was talking about treaty violations and can you count treaty violations and measure the impact of law. And I finally said to him, suppose you go to a dinner at high table and you have too many glasses of wine and then you get into your car and you drive home but because you don't want to be stopped, you take a different way and you drive very slow and you stop at every light. And um, uh, if you're tired, you pull over and you make it home and you never encounter the police. 
every single action was influenced by law, but there's no violation. So how am I going to count that? You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this is the I mean, the same the same criticism goes to Goldsmith. You know, they want to isolate the impact of the international rule and then say the impact of the international rule is not significant, and that therefore. You know, international law doesn't matter. But th that's, again, a conclusion-driving analysis. It's, it's, it, it shows someone or who, who isn't kind of steeped in the way that international law really works in the world. You know, when, you, when I come over here, there's a culture in Cambridge, and, you know, you, you discern the culture and you try to fit into the culture, even if without sacrificing your core identity. And that's not similar to what happens when... Uh, you know, America tries to adjust to the system of international law. Coming then specifically to your first book, uh, which you've touched on, it was at the time extremely well received and it focused on the flaws which you've touched on apropos the Trump administration, the balance of US foreign policy implementation by the three fora of or the imbalance, the balance in US foreign policy implementation by the three fora of state power. And so who did you actually write that book for initially? Was it was it a teaching tool intended as or uh, <laughs> well there are two answers. I wrote it for myself to understand it. Um, but I, I wrote it to explain the Iran Contra affair. Um, the Iran-Contra affair was, you know, you know, this moment in the Reagan administration where a sort of shadow foreign policy was created. And people were talking about it like it was Watergate. And I thought, no, the Iran-Contra affair is really a foreign policy crisis like Vietnam. Um, and that in this effort to try to figure out who's the culprit they weren't blaming the system. The system is the culprit. So, so how is the system the culprit? And it occurred to me there, there are two visions of the Constitution. One is a vision of what I call executive unilateralism. The president can do whatever he wants. And then the other is a system of checks and balances, which I think is captured in the, the Youngstown case, this steel seizure, which is um, the courts, Congress, and the president check each other. And these two visions, extreme executive power and uh, balanced institutional participation have been warring in US history. There are periods in which one is more um, assertive and the other is, uh, is recessive and vice versa. But the irony is that the, uh, that's the constitutional legal vision the political vision, or the political problem is that each of these branches has incentive, political incentive. And whether the president is strong or whether the president is weak, he has an incentive to do things by himself. I mean, look at Trump. You know, he can't get things through Congress because they're so outrageous. So he tries to figure out a way to claim he has exclusive power to do it then Congress has incentives to not be on the record, to acquiesce, to um, uh, not be responsible. 
And then the courts have an incentive to decline to adjudicate. So um, the uh, executive unilateralism vision keeps reasserting itself because the president acts, Congress acquiesces, and the courts defer even if the president is wrong. And that, so there, there's a tension between the legal desideratum, which is balanced power, and the way that political life unfolds. And so you have some, a moment like 9-11, where Bush wildly overreacted to the 9-11 attacks and, um, you know, essentially uh, uh, the courts and Congress both deferred, uh, which was a mistake, and therefore did not protect the vision of the national security constitution. So the book that I want to write now uh, is not, doesn't start with the Iran-Contra affair. It starts, it starts in the middle of the book, which is the beginning of the American Republic, and to try to sketch the emergence of these two visions. And then I'll get to the modern day and I'll talk first about the Iran-Contra affair that's already written. Then I'll talk about 9-11. I've written lots of articles about that. And then I'll talk about the Trump administration as kind of a outer limit of this outrageous claims of executive power. You know, as we speak, Leslie, the president is saying it's a national emergency uh, at the border that requires you to separate parents from their children. I mean, this is outrageous. And um, so I'm going to call this one the 21st century national security constitution because I'd like it to have a little bit of a longer half-life. So this is an idea I keep returning to. Uh, maybe this is the point. The big idea that has been driving me throughout my career is how to preserve the rule of law. Uh, in international affairs, and particularly of my country, my adopted country. And I see the country as having great potential to do good, but also great potential to do evil and, and to seek exemptions for itself, uh, to be exceptionalist in a bad way. And the two ways to do it, I think, are to put external pressure, engage, translate, I mean, in, interact, interpret, internalize, that's transnational legal process. The other is for the forces within the government to play a restraining role on executive adventurism. And what I say in the Trump book is that the two, the combination of this inside and outside check work together to restrain Trump. So, you know, one reason why we see so much activity by Trump is because everything he's doing is being blocked. So to the outside world, it looks like everything he's doing is succeeding. But in fact, he keeps shifting to new policies because the last one got blocked. <laughs> now, it's funny because when I read Goldsmith's review, which this depressing review, you know, his, his view was uh, Trump is doing unbelievable damage. It's all over. In two years, he said, in two years, it's all over. <laughs> you know? I mean... You know, we've had this system in place for hundreds of years. I don't think it, I don't think it falls apart that fast. Now, that doesn't mean we're not, un, you know, we, we have a very bad president who's, who's um, stumbling around trying to destroy what's been created. So it's a bull in a china shop. 
but the china shop's been around for a long time so you mentioned your trump book which is a jump 30 years later from the constitution book and this is this your trump administration has received high praise from interalia professor Allard, who admires it greatly and calls it a searingly clear analysis of the Trump administration's challenges to international law. Um, so it seems that history has turned full circle. I mean, we're back in this unbalanced world that you visited in your 1990 book. And do, would you agree that there's some truth in this analogy of deja vu? We're yeah. Back again with yeah, this. yeah. Well, Yogi Berra, the American baseball player, said it's deja vu all over again. Um, there's a kind of amnesia uh, that afflicts people. Um, it, it's part of the notion that what's going on is a, a problem of bad people rather than bad structure. So, you know, if, if, if it's a bad people, then throw the rascals out and everything's fine. If it's a bad structure, then the problems will recur even with good people. And th that's been my position. So I really have two ideas. I mean, I was kind of simplistic. One is the national security constitution, checks and balances in U.S. foreign policy, and the other is transnational legal process, which is how to check rogue actors in international affairs through external and internal systems. And the Trump book is kind of bringing those two ideas together. Um, I think that one of the tragedies has been of the last uh, 20 years the Republicans like George W. Bush or Trump are wildly aggressive in the wrong direction, using and abusing executive power and um, led by people like John Bolton. The Democrats, after criticizing this, undercorrect. And, you know, so I think that Obama undercorrected for Bush. I think Bob Mueller undercorrected for Comey. And as a result, the pendulum was pushed very hard to the right and then pushed only partly back. And so the pendulum keeps moving in that direction. And that's why the next election is so important because you need to have someone with the courage and, and vision and experience, frankly, to push hard in the right direction. You mentioned the um, review by Professor Goldsmith and he assumes that you know your main thesis is that Trump is trying to alter U.S. foreign policy on the issues which you've mentioned: immigration, trade agreements with China, Paris Agreement, Iran deal, use of force. And he says that by and large, Trump has failed to achieve his goals because the transnational legal process has hindered him. Do you think this is a fair summary of your thesis? Um, by Professor Goldsmith that, um, in fact, these uh, components, the transnational legal process, have, in fact, set Trump back. That, that's my thesis, and if that's what he says, um, that's, you know, my view is he's not, Trump is not winning. Goldsmith's counter view, although he doesn't say it so explicitly, is the sky is falling. Um, that Coe's uh, optimism blinds him to the fact that it's we're in a world of grievous destruction. And my view is, gee, it's a little early. Uh, 
it's a little early to take such a depressive view of the world. You know, I mean, my, uh, a big part of my book, if, if I were to say there's three parts, Trump is not winning, uh, although he's, he's battering the system. Two, the reason he's not winning is because transnational legal process preserves uh, the fidelity of the rule of law, even against these kind of rogue elephants. But third, the outcome is not a foregone conclusion that we need to fight for it, that, that um, each of the issue areas I discussed are areas where there's been a concerted effort to push back on Trump and then he's given way. So it's, what I didn't understand about uh, Goldsmith's book review is on the one hand, he acknowledges the basics of what I said, but then his, his bottom line seems to be Oh gee, it's really terrible. You know, let's give up. You know, Trump, Trump has Trump has done grievous damage. It's it's over. And my view is, gee, it's a, it's a little early to make that kind of assessment. And by the way, if if that is your assessment, uh, then it's easy to give up, um, which is not what I'm interested in doing. And he says that it's clear that Trump's modus operandi is unconventional. And one can see that he's generally clumsy, if not incompetent, at wielding executive power. And he asks, isn't this alone sufficient to account for any of his failures? And he seems to think, Goldsmith seems to think that it's not necessary to, um, as you have done, attribute this Trump's failures to a descriptive analytical tool. Uh. Well, Goldsmith was my student. Uh, he, he's, I don't think he's uh, the shrewdest observer. Um, I think what he'd like to do is distinguish between, uh, he's also an executive power uh, advocate uh, who also doesn't believe much in international law. I think what he would really like to do is to treat Trump as aberrational but try to uh, normalize George W. Bush and say, see, you know, Mitt, Mitt Romney or someone could be a reasonable approach because they're not incompetent. And, um, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't like Obama. He, he constantly is criticizing Obama and Hillary Clinton. And, uh, you know, my, my view is this is... Um, well, I think it's false, and I think it's, uh, he, he has a kind of, as I said, depressed view of the world, which I think is too bad. You know, like, life, life is too short to have such a discouraged view of the world. <laughs> I, I tend to be, as, as I've explained, um, you know, in my own life, there are so many moments where we should have, it should have been over, uh, or where... Doom was upon us, <laughs> but, but here I'm sitting in this beautiful uh, college and, uh, you know, talking to someone who's been nice enough to look at my work. How can I feel uh, so pessimistic about uh, the possibilities of the world? And so let's face it, uh, we, we have a terrible moment um, in our lifetime. The combination of Trump and Brexit is devastating, but... 
they're not over. And, um, and the idea that uh, the forces of international law uh, should somehow um, uh, surrender is, uh, or strikes me as a premature. And, um, you know, it re really against the idea of progress and civilization, you know. I mean, so maybe we will be overwhelmed by climate change because people like Trump will discourage the political forces from doing anything. But I still think there's time and I still think that people can see the light. And I think it's the duty of those of us who care about, as I say, law in the process of humane globalization to push for that outcome. I mean, that's certainly what I see my life's mission as. I mean, the, if you want to be a naysayer or doomsayer, I mean, there's, there's a role for such people and um, they help people surrender to it's a good invitation to to be passive, and in my view, is that's 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 not how you live your life. Um, if my parents had been passive, my mother would be in North Korea and my father would be in a fishing village, buried in a cemetery somewhere, and I wouldn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, they 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 fought hard to change their own existence, and I think um, that's that's the way progress gets made. So a final question on your last book, um, and this is to bring UK politics in. One area where you do make direct reference to the UK in your book is the matter of Brexit. And on page 92, you imply that military actions in Syria have destabilised that country and that this conflict inter alia caused Brexit, presumably in reference to the refugee influx into Europe. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, I mean... Well, one of the controversial positions that I hold is that uh, I was the Assistant Secretary for Human Rights during Kosovo and after Rwanda. Uh, and it seems to me that um, there is a role for preventing genocide and war crimes before they happen. And that's what we tried to do in Libya. The follow-through was imperfect, but we saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, the idea that you don't have any responsibilities to people in a distant place when they're being subjected to gross violations, I think, is wrong. Uh, I think we thought or, that Syria could implode and... Um, that's their problem. That that's certainly a claim that Trump is now making. But it's not so easy. You know, it was one of the stable points of the Middle East. It's destabilized the Middle East. Uh, it put astonishing pressure on Turkey. Turkey has now gone very nationalist and conservative. You know, Erdogan has become a human rights violating dictator. You know, Jordan is under incredible pressure. Egypt is under incredible pressure, and as well, they've become much more nationalist. Uh, Germany was under assault because Merkel allowed people to come in. And then it started to create a feeling of, uh, of, of um, fortress UK. And all of this started to come to a head about the time that the Brexit referendum was happening. And then the forces of fear and um, xenophobia um, 
you know, led people to make a vote that God only knows what they thought they were voting, you know, and, and they were being demagogued by people who were misstating the costs. Um, and three years later, we're still in it. And I mean, here's the real point, Leslie, is that there are real problems in the world. And for the last three years, the UK has been struggling to deal with its own self-inflicted wound. And we every day have to get up and deal with Trump generating problems when, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are very focused on their own objective, you know. While Trump is attacking the World Trade Organization and the World Bank and um, NATO, the Chinese are quietly building the Belt and Road Initiative and their own bank. And, you know, their view is, okay, so we had to live 70 years under this uh, Western liberal post-war order, but now's our moment. These guys are um, distracted and um, therefore we can be focused. And, you know, Putin, um, his view is, uh, you know, extrapolating from where he is it. I can interfere in the electoral systems of foreign countries and get away with it. Uh, so uh, if you have a second re referendum in the UK, what's to pro protect the UK from having Trump use bots and trolls to try to influence that? You know, we have 22 candidates running for president of the United States. You know, why can't uh, they use the exact same methods to tip it toward the person who Trump can be, who I think is probably Bernie Sanders. In other words, we have no confidence now in the integrity of the process. And so, so the, the, the denialist approach to these things, you know, as, you know, Santayana said, if you don't learn from history, you're destined to relive it. Your next book, your transnational litigation in United States courts, was to me personally particularly interesting because it was one of the lectures you gave at The Hague. And I've had the great privilege of interviewing um, judges Higgins, Schwabel, Crawford, and Professors Lautbacht and Bauert, who also contributed to The Hague. Um, and I wondered if you could say something about The Hague experience. Oh, I love The Hague Academy. I, I love The Hague generally. Um, I'm going to The Hague next week to um, to argue at the International Court of Justice in Ukraine versus Russia, and then to argue at the Law of the Sea Tribunal also in Ukraine versus Russia. But in January, just before I came to start the second and third terms here at uh, Cambridge, I gave the keynote speech at the first winter session of the Hague Academy of International Law on American schools of international law. This is, by the way, another one of my projects. Um, uh, there's an Aust Australian scholar, Anthea Roberts, has written a book, Is International Law Really International? And she's basically arguing that Americans don't believe in international law. Now, this may be true of someone like Goldsmith, but it's not true of me. <laughs> or I would argue of the vast mainstream of American international lawyers. <clears throat> so that's kind of a jurisprudential strand. Um, uh, the Hague Academy, I think, is a, a remarkable world resource. Um, and uh, I was very lucky to be invited 
P Peter Truboff, um, who is the American member of the Curatorium, was my first boss at Covington and Burling, and he got me invited there in 1993. Um, it's, it's not a great story about myself. I had been litigating this Hague, uh, the, the Haitian refugee case, nonstop, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week for almost uh, 15 months. And uh, the Supreme Court decided the case and the Haitians on Guantanamo who were, were elite, released on June 20 something, June 21st. And three days later, I had to go to The Hague to give these lectures. So ideally I should have written the lectures before. Instead, I went and gave uh, the best lectures I could give under the circumstance. But then, uh, um, I then uh, essentially wrote them for publication. Um, and then they were published as a private volume at the, the Le Coy de Cour. Then after five years, the um, copyright reverts to you. Uh, and so then I thought, gee, I, you know, this is still pretty current and um, uh, not much as, not, there haven't been that many new cases and I ought to be able to do this. Uh, so I revised and updated it and then published it. But uh, my son, William, uh, to, whom, to whom it's dedicated along with my daughter, when I went to give lectures in The Hague in 1993, the first round, he was three years old. And when the book came to me in that form, he was going off to college. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it just shows you that books just stayed as long as, as children. <laughs> but, you know, it, it got done and um, uh, I'm happy with it. And um, um, I may update it at some point in the future, who knows. But by the way, this is, this is something that that really began when I was clerking for Justice Blackman and Judge Wilkie. You know, one of the cases I talked about at some length, uh, Piper versus Reno was the term I clerked for the Supreme Court. Almost every case discussed in some detail I worked on in some fashion from between 1980 and when the book came out. So, um, it, it goes back to, uh, you know, I'm a, a baseball fan, and uh, the great hitter was um, Ted Williams. And uh, he used to get hits all the time. We, we idolized him. And they asked him once, um, why are you so good? And he said, I never swing unless it's in the strike zone. And um, I remember seeing this when I was three or four years old, and I said to my father, gee, that's very obvious. And he said, no, no, he's a genius. And I said, why? And he said, do you know how many people don't know their strike zone? He said, you, you have to know what your focus is, what your, and then if it's in that zone of focus, give it your all and swing with all your might. And if it's even outside a little bit, just stay away because you don't want to divert your energy. And what it, what it did was this transnational litigation issue 
I started to watch this strike zone in 1980. And I remember the time thinking, I'll never master this. But, you know, 39 years later, um, almost everything that passed through that strike zone, I ended up having some little piece of. And it gave me a kind of overview that, and that I thought I might as well write it down. So the different, the different areas on which I'm trying to give a scholarly focus, the national security constitution, transnational legal process, law and globalization, transnational public law litigation, how it affects our current situation with Trump and Brexit are all an effort to use this uh, microscopic lens of the of the strike zone uh, to to see deeper than the the the, the most obvious uh, superficial um, analysis. Have there been since the book was published many Supreme Court cases bearing on international law? No, surprisingly few. The, uh, probably the only uh, big one is a case called JAM versus International Finance Corporation. It's about the immunity of an international organization. And I wrote a brief in that case for a group of scholars with some other people in which we argued that the um, an international organization should not have more immunity than its member states. And that was a position that prevailed before the Supreme Court. So that's been the main one. It's not necessarily directly connected to any of these issues, but strangely, the Supreme Court's docket has started to decline. When, when I was a law clerk in 1981-82, they heard 130 cases a year in full argument. Now they hear about 60, less than half. They used to hear about four, three or four international cases a year. Now they hear about two. Which, by the way, I think is both bad and good. It's bad because there are so many issues they've never really addressed that are critical to American society. I mean, they, the justices barely understand the Internet. Uh, a number of our justices supposedly don't have passports, which makes them incredibly insular. You know, it's no surprise that Stephen Breyer, the most internationalist, was a Marshall Scholar, is married to a British woman, speaks French, you know. Um, therefore, it doesn't see the United States as the center of everything. Um, whereas others, I think, have this very limited view. Um, I found a review of this book by Professor Anupam Chanda, and he is very complimentary and says that you set yourself a mammoth task in sorting out this huge array of topics in international jurisprudence to make a coherent picture. And he says the book is lucid, has economic explanations, sophisticated, and a major contribution to the field. And he characterizes your notions of uploading domestic law to international law, downloading international law to domestic law, horizontal transplanting, across jurisdictions as cross-cutting dynamics, allowing you to move back and forth between U.S. federal decisions and international conventions. I, and I wondered where you conceived this scheme from and whether it was from your association with Justice Harry Blackman. 
Well, it certainly began there. Um, at Yale, for years, I taught international business transactions, which is one such topic. I taught uh, human rights, which is another such topic. I taught immigration, which is another such topic. Uh, these are transnational in the sense that they are hybrids between domestic and international. Uh, I taught international trade law, which is also hybrid. And so the idea, again, is that um, international concepts developed in the international law realm are downloaded. Um, here's a good example. You know, in the UK, we have the metric system. Is that a British concept or is it an international concept? It's a hybrid. <coughs> or, you know, dot, dot com. You know, there are dot coms everywhere. Is that an international concept or is it a domestic concept? It's a, it's a hybrid. So in many, that's why I use the word transnational. In many respects, it is artificial to characterize things as international or domestic anymore. This is a Benthamite construction that was imposed on uh, the law as a way of understanding it. And I think now it confuses more than it, it clarifies. Uh, I think what that book would be nice for him to say it, what I tried to do in the transnational litigation book is instead of just talking about topics and cases, I wanted to extract themes that explain why the courts rule in particular directions. Like um, some of it is to protect the autonomy of parties to contracts. Some of it is separation of powers. Some of it is uh, sovereignty. And that in different cases you see uh, comedy is another you, you see the courts invoking different ideas and giving diff different ones higher or lower priority and sometimes one or the other is more controlling a, of the outcome but i think the idea was you you could have a 10 cases and apparently concerning different aspects of uh, a lawsuit you know immunities um choice of forum, choice of law, enforcement of judgments. But these same themes are cross-cutting and that, you know, it's a, it's a very consistent pattern of, of being invoked. Now, different justices invoke them in different ways and you have different coalitions. And I think that's what the book review was getting at, which is um, the idea is to give the reader a sense that when you approach these things, there are only so many ideas that the justices are bringing to their analysis. Uh, I was intrigued by your description in your book, page 248-252, and then the last few pages, 258-60, of the two strands in U.S. Supreme Court thinking, the transnationalist judges and the nationalistic judges. How have things evolved since 2008, especially in the development of a global legal system? Well, obviously the two Trump appointees, um, Gorsuch and um, uh, Kavanaugh are uh, na uh, nationalists. The last two Obama appointees, Sotomayor, who speaks Spanish, and Kagan are transnationalists, so it's two and two. Uh, some of the justices who got off the court 
Souter, O'Connor, and Kennedy had transnationalist leanings. Roberts, who's the Chief Justice, is a strong nationalist. So right now there's a 5-4 majority for a nationalist position. You know, my view, this is very unfortunate. You know, the United States is the leading global power. Um, you know, they should be. What, what Justice Blackman said, which is very simple, and he said in the aerospatial case, is an American judge should not simply think about what's good for America. They should think about whether the rule that's being adopted um, leads to the smoother functioning of the international system. So in the same way as, you know, you, you pick a, a legal rule that makes the United States as a nation operate better in a system of global commerce, you know, why doesn't a rule of judicial interpretation make the world markets operate better? Now, this leads us to this sovereignty objection, uh, which is, um, I find it almost comical. Uh, you can't apply foreign law. And, um, uh, you know, the United States, you should apply American law. And uh, this to me is like saying um, you, you can't put kimchi in a taco. <laughs> you know, you know, America is a nation of borrowers and um, it amalgamates culinary traditions. You know, the, uh, everything is a hybrid. And I'm married to an Irish woman. Um, it's crazy you know, to say, you know, you mean I can I can uh, I I can put kimchi in a taco and enjoy that, and I can't borrow British law and put into U.S. opinion. In fact, the United States jurisprudence is a history of borrowing from the U.K. and the Commonwealth, not to mention other countries. So. Um, one isn't again. It's not dissimilar to Trump. It's a kind of insulated, fortress America view of the law versus an inclusive, um, looking for the best global principles. It reminds me of a question on the notion of statehood and sovereignty, um, which. Um, in relation to the interview I had with Judge Crawford last year, and he said that in, in respect to the Montevideo Convention for statehood, he said, let's get rid of the Montevideo Convention. It's too, it's imperfect, it's partial, and we have to clarify our concepts. Nevertheless, apropos the necessity for recognizing states for the functioning of international law, he also said that in the present conception of international law, yes, they, states are necessary to solve the problems of the world. International law is a law of coordination addressed to human problems, and these can't be solved by individual assertions of sovereignty, but by coordination. Does this mean that your transnationalistic Supreme Court vision equates with the Crawfordian vision, while the nationalist view adheres more to the Montevideo Convention scenario. Uh, yeah, I mean, for example, um, a nation, so, so the, the international, inter-national vision thinks that international law is for states only. Um, the nation of Tuvalu 
versus uh, Microsoft. It, it's not comparable. You know, private collections of power uh, and influence um, and, and, and collaborations among uh, private actors is, is what makes law. Now, the, the main point is that this was the originalist vision. The original notion of a lex mercatoria or a law merchant, when, when Marco Polo went to buy noodles from Chinese people or vice versa and had to pay them in the markets, there was no national law that governed it. They were from different countries. They developed a transnational law of commerce, which has come to be known as the law merchant, the Lex Mercatoria. The British carried that law because of their naval power and also their colonial power. So, um, and then the U.S. inherited it. Um, so, what Judge Crawford is saying is to focus in on those states that meet the narrow Montevideo criteria as the only meaningful players when you have, uh, uh, you know, so many other transnational actors. I mean, this, this is the theme of my book on Trump. You know, climate change is not controlled by the United States. I mean, Trump is a powerful actor in this story, but so is a zillion other entities. And they can all push in the different direction. And in fact, make up for some of the losses by Trump and the, and the, the, the deficits. And so if we think that it's for states only, then we say there's nothing we can do. If we think we are participants and we own it too, it imposes on us a moral duty to try to participate. Uh, I mentioned that my brothers are doctors. My brothers are doctors. I'll never forget my father said when they got their medical degrees, he said, um, I quote this in the book, he said, before you understood the human body, you didn't have an obligation to heal people, moral obligation. He said, you didn't know how. He said, but you're now, you have that knowledge. And that conveys with it this ethical obligation to make people healthier. You know, if I understand how the body politic works or the body legal works, I have a moral obligation to try to make that system work better and not collapse or not just say the, you know, the sky has already fallen. And, um, you know, if I didn't know, I wouldn't know how to affect it. If I do know, I'm a participant in the process. And why should I defer to a Donald Trump? I mean, he's certainly a player in it, and he certainly has resources, and he certainly has authorities. But if he's mucking it up, um, <laughs> we need the forces on the other side. This, this is a role that universities play. This is a role that knowledge plays. Uh, uh, yeah, may, maybe this is a bad moment. Another thing that my father said to me is the, the world is filled with good people and bad, good countries and bad governments. I mean, look at you, as, I, as we speak, you have no prime minister here uh, and um, we have Donald Trump as our president. But uh, I've been traveling around the UK. What a wonderful country. And, you know, the United States, um, you know, 
is still the same country that elected Obama or that cast more than three million votes for Hillary Clinton uh, over Trump. So I can't give up on these things, um, you know. Um, but the the law is not made by these public entities alone. Thank you. Your last book that we look at briefly is the compilation with Professor Una Hathaway, Foundations of International Law and Politics. And here you select mainly journal articles to illustrate various concepts bringing international law and international relations together. And these articles range in age from 1994 HLA, a Hart's article to your own in 2005. And what motivated you uh, to compile this book? Was it, again, primarily a teaching aid? Um. So George Bernard Shaw said that America and England are two countries divided by a common language. <laughs> it turns out international law and international relations are two disciplines uh, divided by um, methodology. So um, the world of international law talks about things, um, relations among transnational actors making legal rules, where the international relations talk about how powerful entities in the system interact with each other and create norms. And they don't do much to translate the idea of norms into the idea of law. My teacher, Abram Chase, said international relations scholars hate to say the L word um, now, I, I was struck by this because I studied political science and then I went to law. And it was almost like, you know, we would study the exact same subjects, like you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in one thing, we'd study entirely from a kind of political science perspective. And on the other, we'd suddenly talk about the legal rules that were made and never should with the twain meet. And... Um, you know, so for example, at Cambridge, you have a phenomenal international law faculty, but you also have a politics and international relations department. At Oxford, they have something, I, I gave a lecture over there, uh, politics and international relations. And, but they also have international law. But very often, these disciplines don't talk to each other. Hello? Hi. Oh, hold on. This is my student coming in. Tondo, how are you doing? Come on in. Do you mind uh, having a seat here? Yeah, this is um, uh, a lovely dingle. This is Tondo. She's a, a, a friend of my um, student at Yale, and we've been trying to get together for a while. Just have a seat over here. We're finishing up the conversation. Um, so in the late 1990s, there was an effort funded by the Ford Foundation to try to bridge the gap between international law and international relations. Um, I think it got to a certain place, and then I think it, to be honest, the international relations people, I don't think, appreciated as much about the role of law. I, I gave you the example of someone who has law-influenced behavior but never violates the law. You know, the, the, the international relations methodology is counting 
and they're looking for data points. And I think they end up therefore uh, ignoring pervasive influence, et cetera. So the point of the book was to try to uh, pick readings so that people on both sides of this scholarly divide could understand what the other people are thinking and um, see the deep connections. Because it shouldn't be as it was for me that, you know, when I'm studying international relations, I'm reading a, a bunch of literatures and learning these jargons. And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with international law? Then I get to the international law side and nobody mentions um, the the uh, international relations literature that I've been reading. I mean, it, was, it was crazy. So, it, that, so that, that was what the book was intended to do. It can be used in college courses. It can be used in graduate programs in international relations. But it can also be used in international law theory courses, etc. Um, I was interested to see in your preface that you cite Professor Myers MacDougall as a pioneer in the modern collaboration between international law and international relations. And of course, he was someone under whose spell Dame Rosalind Higgins fell. Yes. And she was enchanted by him when she was at Yale. And he taught her that, and I quote from her interviews, that international law is not about rules, but mostly about norms. And these were concepts that she hadn't met here in Cambridge. Um, was there still a lingering legacy of the spell of this extraordinary man by the time that you arrived at Yale? And did this somehow influence you? Yeah, he was there the first five years I was there. He passed away. I mean, he was a very dominating force. He was a gigantic guy. I mean, um, he was about six six foot three but huge person and with a very powerful personality also very funny charismatic um you know he was the founder of the new haven school uh, I, i've written two things 2007 yale journal of international law called is there a new new haven school of international law i think the transnational legal process school is the new new haven school it's a combination of norms and process so I think it's it's actually a cross between Harvard's international legal process and Yale's policy science approach. And then I've just written a chapter in a book by Jeffrey Dunoff and uh, I think it's Mark Pollock called The New New Haven School. And the, the speech I just gave at the Hague Academy on um, American schools of international law argues that in fact, this transnational legal process view is the dominant approach to international law in the United States. So here's another way to put it. You hear a lot about kind of schools that are more at the margins. So there's a, what I call a, um, there's a critical school, left's critical school, with people like David Kennedy. Marty Kuskanemi is connected to that. There is a, a Chicago school, a kind of law and economics school. People like uh, Andrew Guzman, Eric Posner, uh, they believe it's all economic incentives. There's a kind of um, uh, uh, Harvard School, Goldsmith, is very much a nationalist school. Curtis Bradley. So all of these get attention. 
But in fact, if you look at 90% of what's going on in U.S. international law, it's um, transnational legal process. So my view is that that is actually, and, and so we've, I call it the new New Haven School. It, it's, I think, an advancement beyond what McDougal did. It builds on kind of Harvard and, and Yale's, in fact, it just sort of reflects the influences that I saw, plus this international relations theory you mentioned. All of these international influences come in. Thank you. Well, I could ask you questions endlessly about this, but sadly, time is running out. And so, just to conclude, what would you describe as the highlights of your time in Cambridge? Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think there there are two. Um, the experience around writing the book and then having a chance to workshop it with many uh, parts of the UK has been a real joy. Um, I mean, it's, it's nice to return. I mean, I, I, when I was here a year ago, this was in my mind. And now I'm talking to people who are reacting to it. and. Um, um, that's given me a whole set of new thoughts for the next 10 years. The other was just the uh, emotional experience of um, being at Cambridge as an adult. You know, when I went to Oxford as a student, uh, what's the best way to put it? I was terrified by the, the university. I was, you know, young and the whole place seemed to be full of invisible rules and who am I and what am I doing there? And I just somehow felt, you know, I would never be at comfortable or at home. And I was constantly afraid of picking up the wrong fork. Or <laughs> um, and I think it was only toward the end of the two years that I started to appreciate the, the you know, the wonderful people and the wonderful country and the, the brilliance of the university, etc., um, and um, this time around, you know, here I am. I'm in, you know, the, the later stages of my career. So, you know, I'm I'm actually uh, happy that I don't have to worry about these things anymore. You know, that um, I'm not I'm not as um, uh, for example, I noticed the other day I went to a dinner and uh, they brought out a little uh, glass of water or a bowl of water with lemon in it. And um, so I, I thought I was supposed to uh, 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 put my fingers in it and somebody else picked up a <laughs> So, you know, this kind of thing would have shattered me. <laughs> But in fact, it was just funny. <laughs> um, but uh, I think what it, what it, uh, I just read C.P. Snow's book, The Masters, and um, which is obviously about how the master of Christ gets chosen. And um, so that was fascinating to read in its own right, and partly because it grows out of the culture of, of, um, of, uh, Cambridge, but then at the very end, there's an appendix where he describes how Cambridge University came into existence 
and, and it reminds me of this uh, statement that some, some authors are architects and some are gardeners. And the gardeners plant seeds and then the seeds come up in different ways and make a garden. And this kind of organic bottom-up way in which Cambridge became this world-class university and that, that the colleges and the structure of the colleges and the social life political life grew out of that and that that's really how the story of the masters fits into some broader scheme um, that that's what I think I appreciate more now is um, uh, you know I, I've lived in universities my whole life and in fact my parents have lived lived in universities in several continents but there's something very special I mean the universities that exist around the world are modeled, including my own Yale's modeled on Oxford and Cambridge. And so that's been the best thing. And um, I think I always feared Cambridge as kind of this other place. And, but, but now I feel like it's a little bit of a home to me. That's nice. Thank you. Well, all that remains is to thank you again so much for this fascinating account. I'm very grateful to you. Oh, thank you for all, you, all the work time. you did. Yeah, I'm very touched. She's uh, interviewing me for an archive that they have here for the professorship I'm holding. Okay. Thank you again. Great. <laughs>